0: Good morning. Are oh, you going do better than that? Good morning. I thank our beloved Reverend Jackie. How lucky are you to have Reverend Jackie at this church? Oh my God for giving me this opportunity this morning, and I thank you for inviting me into this beautiful church on this precious Mother's Day. I bow to all mothers of children, of movements, of ideas, of adopted friends and families. I bow to mothers who garden and tend the earth and mothers who fight for human rights. And I bow to our holy mother, the divine earth, who is so generous in spite of our indifference. I want to just recognize Dara Baldwin, whose birthday it is today, and Alison Palmer, And I want to thank my beautiful son Dylan for being here and my gorgeous, gorgeous granddaughter Coco, whose birthday is on Tuesday. (laughs) I have never given a sermon before, and it might surprise you that as a radical anti-feminist, anti-racist feminist, it's been a dream of mine secretly forever. So I want to thank Jackie for fulfilling this dream. I come to you this morning as many things. I come as a woman who has had at times been lost and anxious and despaired, and I come to you as a woman who has known the deepest bliss, contentment, and love. I come as a woman who has loved men and women, and a woman who has been utterly terrified of intimacy. I come as an artist who has been saved by the act of creation, and I come as an activist giving what I need the most. I come as a friend, a mother, a sister, a daughter, and a rebel. I come as a white person whose ancestral legacy was responsible for murdering, pillaging, colonizing, raping, and the removal of the indigenous whose land we stand on right now. I come from an ancestral legacy which produced 400 years of slavery, lynchings, murder, rapes of our beautiful African-American brothers and sisters. Followed by Jim Crow and continuing endless diabolical white supremacy through active participation or through the blindness of privilege. I come from Jewish ancestors erased in genocide. I come from the oppressed and I come from the oppressor, the murdered and the murderer. These stories shame me and catalyze me every day. I come with mad hope and I come with pure outrage. I come with sorrow. I come with magic. I come with grief that feels so huge it could feel to fill the oceans with my tears. I come knowing each of us is divine, and I come knowing we are wildly imperfect. I come as a seeking human being, and I come as a know-it-all. I come as a white, middle-class person who had all the economic and racial privileges, And I come as a girl who has been devastated by sexual violence beginning at five from that same father of privilege and the murderous violence which ravaged me until I left home at 18. I come to you with a heart breaking from the violence of our current state of America and the hate. And I come to you as a woman who is forever moved by the generosity and kindness of the many. I come to you as a person who wonders deeply if we humans have a future here on earth, and if we are going to get it together in the next 12 years, and I come to you as someone who will fight to the end to make sure we do. (laughs) I come to you as a realist, and I come to you as a believer in miracles. I come to you as a woman who lives in the woods and worships and spends my days bowing and hugging trees, and serve the mother, and I come to you as a city dweller searching for a way home. This particular morning, I have come to talk to you about the alchemy of the apology. Some ground rules. This is an offering, not a prescription, not a must-do, not the only way. It's an offering, period. Every survivor, every person has their own journey, their own process, their own timing. What works for one person may not work for another. What works at one moment of your life may not work in another. I'm simply sharing my own experience, and as one of my gurus, Terence McKenna, says, it's the only thing we can fully trust. There may be things I say that are triggering or difficult here this morning, so I just want to open that and put that out there. And two, when I use the word women, I mean to include all women who identify as women. As I said, my early years were brutal and full of terror and pain. My father sexually abused me from five to ten, And after he stopped, he needed to erase what he had already destroyed. So he physically and emotionally battered me, almost murdering me, until I left home at 18. That abuse altered the constitutional makeup of my entire being. It filled my cells and blood and body with terror, worry, guilt, dread, that would, in my teenage years and on until my 60s, develop into all-encompassing self-hatred and anxiety. The abuse created infections in my body and, 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 and seriously compromised my immune system, and in my 50s, I would get stage 3, 4 uterine cancer. I miraculously, miraculously, am totally well now, nine years. Thank you. The abuse created infections in my body, and it froze me and made it almost impossible to concentrate or think. This had a terrible impact on my ability to study and learn. This reconfirmed my father's idea of me as a stupid person. The abuse made intimacy claustrophobic, made love foreign, made safety a pipe dream, and drew me constantly to dangerous situations and people in an attempt to master my past and my fear. The abuse led to addiction, alcohol, drugs, sex, I tell you all this not for your pity or sorrow. I tell you because when we talk about violence against women, it is so abstract, so broad, we don't realize the specific detailed ways it impacts our lives and how many years, how much time it takes to rise from the ashes. I've been blessed that for years I was able to waitress and make enough money to survive, and then doubly blessed that I made my way as a writer so I could afford to pay for the resources Therapy to help lift me and lift the lid of that very dark period of life. And I was also embraced by a 12-step program that really taught me what community was and love. I know others are not so fortunate. And I know if we lived in the world, I imagine, we would take at least 80% of the money we spend on bombs and missiles and grenades and guns and war and killing and we would redirect it into a national trauma fund so that all those who are suffering from some kind of trauma, whether it be physical or sexual violence, ancestral violence, casteist violence, racial or gender violence, could have the means and resources and love and attention to recover. It would be a national priority alongside the Green New Deal. Can you imagine the outcome of a country that treated the trauma of its citizens rather than punishing them for being wounded, or poor, or mentally ill, or immigrants, or homeless, or broken, or deprived, or angry, or violent? As I said, I have spent my life climbing out of the hole of betrayal and terror, finding a way back into this body. My father died 31 years ago, and for the years before he died and the years after, I've been waiting for him to make a reckoning, to be accountable, to make an apology. So I decided to write his apology. In his voice, with his words, to write a letter where he would say all the things I needed to hear. The apology required time, and they all do. It's not, I'm sorry. It could not be rushed. My father, the one I imagined, the one inside me, had to spend days reliving his crime, mentally reenacting the details, feeling what it must have been like inside me, his daughter, the one he abused. He had to strip away the hardness which prevented him from empathy, the narcissism, the indifference that rejected responsibility, rejected even the notion of apology itself. I asked him, remember my cries and pleading look back and see my face, what it looked like when you demeaned me, or insulted me, or grabbed me, or beat me, or invaded me, or raped me. I asked him to meditate and to try to feel and experience what it was like inside my body as I experienced the confusion, the terror, the rage, the claustrophobia, the heartbreak, and the betrayal. It had to be thorough. The liberation for both the perpetrator and the victim in the apology is in the details. I've asked many women what would justice look like after they've been sexually abused or battered or incested or harassed. Some women demand punishment, prison time for their perpetrators, public exposure, loss of jobs, loss of careers. Some women simply want their perpetrators to disappear altogether. But most women that I've spoken to say that in order to heal, in order to move on, what they need and want from their perpetrator is to acknowledge the truth of what he's done. They want their perpetrator to recognize them as a full and real human being, to acknowledge the harm he has caused and to feel remorse and heartbreak They need to see their perpetrator has taken responsibility for his actions and done extensive work to understand what made him commit this violence. They need to know the depth of his reckoning will prevent him from ever committing this violence again. So what is an apology? It's a humbling. It's a loss of grandiosity and superiority. It's an admission of wrongdoings. It's a surrender. It's an equalizer. Is making true connection. An apology is the antidote to the convenient and diabolical amnesia which grips our family and country. Apologize, apologies rip open the lies, the denial, the myths, the delusions that keep the violent story in place. Just imagine, If we really apologize to the indigenous or to African-Americans, really apologize and went through the steps to say, this happened and this happened and we're responsible for this and we're responsible for this, an apology is a remembering, a public acknowledgement that what occurred really did occur. The powerful have been trained never to apologize. They make themselves the victims. We only have to look at our current predator-in-chief to understand that. That's what my father did, right? Even as he whipped me and threw me against walls, he was the victim, reminding me always how it hurt him more than it hurt me. I was the reason he had to do it. I behaved like that. He had no choice. Some accused men, right, have lost jobs, careers, reputations. I have to say, it's been short-lived for most white men. Some men have gone to prison. But even when they come forward to describe what they have learned since being accused, they don't say the words, acknowledge the specificity of their crimes, they don't trace the history of their own stories or development of distortions in their own psyches that would at least attempt to make sense of this brutality. They don't investigate the system of patriarchy and racism and privilege that allowed, encouraged, and gave them cover for this violence. They don't wrestle down their demons and expose vulnerability. Instead, when called out, they speak of their own pain and loss and misfortune, often steeped in self-pity. I have read no words of any man accused of sexual violence, none publicly, who has taken the painstaking steps to self-revelation, who has done the treacherous work of owning his actions, searching his history to trace the seeds and reasons for his crime in facing his violence, in speaking the words, in making the apology. And I do not know if it is simply ignorance, or male entitlement, or shame, or refusal, or arrogance, or that men are simply unable to face so much pain, or they've been so trained to hold on to their pride and power to the final hour. My father said to me in the book, and to be be honest, writing this book, I really do, do feel like he spoke to me, that for a man to apologize, is to be a traitor to men. Once one man admits he was wrong and knows he was wrong, the whole story begins to collapse. So many of us have been waiting. I think of brave Anita Hill and Christine Blasey Ford. I think of the comfort women in the Philippines and all over Asia who were kidnapped and raped by Japanese soldiers in World War II standing every Thursday at vigils for 70 years, waiting, waiting, waiting for the apology to come. Most of them have died now. The rest are old and failing. They have never heard the words, and they will never rest. We have devoted our lives waiting for this truth to be uncovered because it lives at the center of everything we are and are not. It's the stoplight in our nervous systems. Without this accounting, we cannot go on. For a lingering lie is an undeniable stain that controls and defines. That lie is like a cancer cell that first invades and then spreads through the whole system. And even when we appear to go on, even when we move our bodies forward and go to our jobs and feed our children, we can never be whole. Because without justice, there is no freedom, there is no integrity, there is no full life. It's the system that has to change. The fundamental beliefs, the values, the central idea. The question is, how do we address racist patriarchy? The paradigm that underlies all the violence we are currently inside. We have to get under the story in order to uproot it, rather than continuing to ram up against it. We have to offer a doorway, rather than a locked cell. We have to move from humiliation to revelation, from curtailing behavior to changing it, from containing perpetrators to calling them to reckoning. And the truth is the system of patriarchy is as poisonous to the winners as it is to the losers, as devastating to the men who are severed from their hearts and tenderness as it is to the women who suffer terrible violence as a result of that separation. Women spend their lives recovering from sexual violence, but men spend their lives covering for it. And both these things empty and take our lives. The truest healing heals the victim and perpetrator at once because both are forever caught inside the same story. Punishment in itself cannot offer healing. We live in such a punishing country, such a punishing country. We punish each other on every level. Punishment does not change us. Punishment punishes us. Many of men are afraid now and, 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 and are very confused. They don't know how to act. And of course, having this new awareness is a wonderful thing. But being on guard does not necessarily mean being aware of the issues. It doesn't assure being educated or taking responsibility or exploring your inner depths to see where you were sexist or culpable or how your past actions have hurt someone and when you need to be, make repairs. Being on guard means being sure you don't screw up, make a mistake, get caught. It's a punishment response. You're in fear, on hold, suspended. It's not a state of mind in which you are open or vulnerable or where you can learn or change. I believe this deeper process is calling us now. I actually believe we are pushing forward to move into an age of reckoning. The apology is an excavation insisting that the perpetrator go beneath the surface, be willing to mine the layers of truth and guilt hidden between each new revelation. An apology is both a method and a practice. The act itself holds the possibility of transformation, of liberation. When it is offered, as it's received, the authentic apology creates an alchemical reaction. A physical, spiritual, psychological dissolving of the offense and rancor and bitterness, revenge and hate. This is actually, I think, what forgiveness feels like. As Emma Goldman once said, before we can forgive one another, we have to understand one another. We need to teach apology the way we teach prayer. For it is, in fact, a practice. And it requires practice to get it right. It demands thoroughness and devotion and concentration. It demands the vulnerability of that petition and the humility. Each one of us is seriously flawed and imperfect, and I think our greatest flaw is that we don't even know that or believe that. Each one of us is flawed, but we are engaged, hopefully each of us, in uplifting our souls and evolving our humanity. Apology is the medicine. It's the salve, it's the cleanses and fortifies and allows us to continue on. But it has to be taught, it must be practiced. I hear survivors often being told, you need to forgive your perpetrator and just move on. I worry how we use forgiveness, how somehow we skip the vital piece of reckoning and accounting before any form of true forgiveness can occur. In many religions, there's a confession, or there's admitting of wrongs which generates forgiveness, The onus is not on the victim to forgive. It is not on the victim to forgive. This feels like the next forced mandate, and without the discourse and action of the apology, it can be hollow and inorganic, and never releasing the victim or perpetrator from guilt or rage. Writing this book was the most difficult, painful, and liberatory things I've ever done. I had to enter the wound. You know, I woke up in the middle of the night two nights ago, and it was really strange. I I saw this mandala of the whole world. And in the center, there was a center, and in the center of that, there was this really small dot. And as I get close to it, it started to open and open and open, and I realized it was the wound. It was the wound. And I realized that the wound is a portal. It's a portal. But you have to go inside the wound. You have to go all the way inside the wound to get to the other side of the wound. If you pull up to the door of the wound and you park your car there, park your horse there, you will be in pain for eternity. But if you make a choice to go into the wound, to touch all the places you're afraid to touch, you will get to the other side. And on the other side, there is freedom. Writing this book, as I said, you know, I I love Cornel Weston. He brilliantly describes that. He says, we have to make a courageous, creative, unflinching look at catastrophe. I had to remake myself in the idea of myself writing this book. I had to break the vice of my lifelong identity being victim to my father's perpetrator. And I have to tell you, I was very attached to that identity. I made a life of it. And that's not to say it was a bad thing, but it was the frame that contained my life. I had to paint my father in more diverse and intricate colors. I had to enter his pain, his history, and I had to grieve for him. I discovered that my father, my perpetrator, was part of me, that I actually know him in some ways better than I know myself, and that I've been in conscious or unconscious dialogue with him inside me my whole life. And then I came to the startling realization that I could change who he was inside of me and how he behaved. He could own his terrible deeds. He could feel my pain. He could evidence awareness of remorse. He took responsibility, and he apologized. He went from abuser to apologist, from monster to vulnerable, hurting, broken human being. And for the first time, I can honestly tell you, I am genuinely free. I realized. I want to say something about that. Often when we're abused, it doesn't matter if it's racial abuse, or caste abuse, or gender abuse, or economic you know, put-down, or immigrant abuse, we're told once that abuse occurs, we're kind of finished. We're broken. We're done. Particularly rape survivors, we're told that all the time. That is the second level of abuse. The, the story that that abuse has finished you. And I'm here to say we can get free from the abuse. We are warriors and we can transform that suffering so that we can be radical, revolutionary actors in the world. I realize that even the desire for an apology is a tall order. It would mean, at the very least, a remaking of human consciousness. It would mean becoming vulnerable and lost and risking that the exploration and expurgation could potentially mean a radical change of identity and position. But what it could also mean is being involved in a process which has the possibility of bringing us into a time where the tyranny of misogyny and racism which has robbed men of their hearts and tenderness and humanity is transformed into a time of equality, peace, and loving connection between men and all women. Our Our imagination is our most powerful weapon. We can conjure the dead. And let me tell you, the dead are all around us. They need to be in dialogue with us. They need to get free. We can rewrite their stories. We can make them see us as they have never seen us. We can get them to reveal themselves and see themselves, and we can transform the underlying narrative that has caught us in a cycle of violence, punishment, and more violence. I ask myself, what am I doing here on this earth? What am I doing here? My answer is very simple. I I'm here to get free. Free of rancor, free of pain, free of racism, reversing the legacy that I carry as a white person, free of prejudice and unkindness, free of self-loathing, free of my desire to hurt and compete, free to live fully in my sacred body and to be with the earth in all her beauty and know that we are one, free of jealousy, ego, free of not feeling like enough, free of comparison, free to be my authentic self, free to serve and only serve that which is divine. Only then can I manifest my real purpose. And there is only one real purpose that we are doing here on this earth. The only reason we were put down into this plane at this time, in this realm, and that is to love. And I don't, mean, I don't mean a sentimental, touchy-feeling kind of love like the kind of I'm sorry postcards. I mean a fierce love that Jackie talks about, a love born in the alchemy of the wound, of the shadow, of the shamanic fire of the true and radiant apology. So I ask you all this morning, go into yourselves. Go into yourselves and truly ask yourself, what apology are you being called to make? Who have you harmed that you have denied to yourself about? Who did you do something to that impacted their future and the lives of their children, and the lives of their family members? What wound do you need to uncover and enter into in order to face the truth about who you have harmed? What apology have you never received that you need to write for yourself? What lengths are you willing to go to free yourself and your victim from a lifetime, a legacy of pain and suffering. I ask you, will you please practice apology? Thank you very much. Thank you.